I get to try out this new pulpit here. Got room for everything. Last couple of weeks ago, when Matt was here, so I was doing that morning talk, and I came up, and in the bottom right, he had just one sheet of paper, and he had these little boxes, and they were color-coded, so he could just kind of follow the boxes around so he could talk and he'd look. So today, when I was getting ready for this, and if you know me, um, I usually don't use any notes. I just kind of remember no, and I go along. But I didn't want to, because I kind of practiced, and I realized it would take me two hours to get through everything. I sent him 23 scriptures today. <laughs> so I said, well, I better write down. So I took a piece of paper, and I put those little boxes down there. I can't read them. So I said, well, how am I going to do this? So I, I printed out, you know, I printed out the stuff, and so it's big. But then I got the iPad, and it's big, and I'm not sure which one I should look at here. And then the Bible, but it's really small print, so I'm kind of in a, out of sorts here. But before I get started, one thing we wanted to mention, um, next Wednesday night, uh, Pastor Lance is going to host uh, a panel of pastors um, from around the nation, and he's going to have also Bob Tyler from Advocates of Faith and Freedom. And they're going to get together, and they're going to address um, to the church um, what can Christians or what should we think regarding the challenges believers are facing in the world today? Specifically, what are the greatest challenges facing the church and how can the church respond to those challenges? And although the pandemic is behind us, immediately after the pandemic, we realized we didn't know what to do. Everything was kind of by the seat of our pants. We just kind of, and, and God bless the opportunities. You remember the stuff that happened in here and out there and it's just kind of, and as the world is changing so quickly, wouldn't it be great if we actually had a strategy and we actually could ask the questions ahead of time? And so we're gonna do that next Wednesday night. And if you have a question that is, you're wondering about or thinking about, you can send an email to info at calvarylh.org. Or text it there. <laughs> um, so yeah, you text it there and um, in your question, and next week, then they'll make sure they uh, address those questions specifically. We have it, and they'll go broader than that, of course, as well. So, okay, I think that's it. So, anyways, today we're going to, or tonight, we're going to continue on in the book of Matthew. And we started the book of Matthew back in April. And I remember starting that, and we did the genealogy first. And it was kind of one of those places where who has their favorite verse out of the genealogy? not the kind of place that people get excited about. But it was the beginning. And it's the beginning of a book that um, you began to see a narrative about who is this, who is this man Jesus? Who is he? Jesus asked his disciples, he said, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. So in 28 chapters, we get to see how Jesus is going to share that life with the world. But to go back a little bit, remember the book of Matthew is one of the synoptic gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they wrote to different audiences, but they all had a different twist. Matthew was a tax collector. He was the guy that was good with money, good memory. He wrote the longest narratives about Jesus, but he wrote to a Jewish audience. These guys knew the law. They searched the Old Testament. That was their mindset. Then you had Mark, and Mark wrote to the Roman audience. So they was a Gentile audience. So some of the Jewish traditions and things that were in Matthew's account, we don't see in Mark's account, or vice versa. And then Luke would write more to a Greek audience, and so his take was a little bit different. So you could have the same story, and sometimes people read those stories, and they go, ah, I found a contradiction in the Bible. No, you just have Matthew was talking to a Jewish person, and if he said the same thing to a Gentile, it would right over their head. So he didn't include it, and vice versa again. So when we look at the book of Matthew then, we're looking at a book that was to answer the simple question, is Jesus the rightful king, and is Jesus the Messiah? And Matthew's going to go through his narratives to convince, to tell, and declare that Jesus is, in fact, that Messiah and the king. One really 
fascinating thing I discovered this week as I was going through it. And one of the verses that we'll often read and we'll probably get to within a couple of weeks, it's hard to believe we're at Christmas already, but in Isaiah, in chapter 9, we talk about that verse, you know, for unto us a child is born, a son is given. And so when you read that verse, what is that, chapter 9? Yeah, verse 6. Oh, I'm in Ecclesiastes. That's not going to help. <laughs> I was going, that doesn't look right at all. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Okay. So you're reading about this child. So in the Jewish mind, they're thinking the Messiah is coming. In the next verse, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with the judgment and justice from that time forever, even forever. So it goes from birth to kingdom in one verse. They didn't know there was going to be 2,000 years of gap in there or more. So when they read it and they're thinking about the coming Messiah, they're thinking of the last part of that. Oh, he's going to be born and he's going to come and he's going to establish his kingdom. That's what the Messiah will do. And so they were confused why Jesus wasn't coming like that. And so if he said he was the Messiah, they, I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't seem to follow the scriptures the way we're reading them. So they had to work through that. Matthew's going to do that when he addresses um, them through his various narratives here. So in chapter 1, we had that genealogy. And then in chapter 2, we had the birth of Jesus and the flight out of Bethlehem. And then in chapter 3, we have John the Baptist. And he's the forerunner of the Messiah. And then in chapter 4, we have the temptation of Christ, the moral Jesus then showing how we can stand up to Satan. He's our moral priest, our high priest. And then you have Sermon on the Mount, the lessons of the kingdom. And then Matthew 8 and 9, where we are now, we're going to read, not all tonight, but Matthew 8 and 9, there's 10 miracles that we hear in these two chapters. Jesus performs 37 of them throughout his life that we have the record of here. So we're going to get a bulk of them right here in these two chapters. So if we look at Matthew 4.23 and see if my slides, I gave them all these verses and I got a call today and said, could you send them to them? Oh, they did. Okay, good. We got them all. So in Matthew 4.23, here's where it starts. And you're thinking, I thought we were doing Matthew 8. Well, we'll get there. If I can flip there. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people. So the crowds now heard this. Remember, they're thinking Messiah. I want to see this Messiah. And here comes this guy on the scene, and he's healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases among the people. And the crowd starts forming. We find out, in fact, if you go to Matthew, don't have to turn there, but at the end of Matthew 4, it says, great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So they're coming from all around. The word of Jesus is spreading. And so there are crowds there. So Jesus has to find a way to speak to them. So it says he would up on a hill, on a mountain. And unlike today, we can, we can try this out. Here's what would happen. I'll put that back. Jesus would come talk to him. He sits down. Guess what you all get to do? You all would stand. And so if Jesus was teaching, Jesus would sit, and you all would have to stand. And then you realize, well, how long did they stand? Well, Sermon on the Mount. Now, that's kind of a funny title. Sermon on the Mount. It doesn't tell you anything about what it's about, does it? It'd be like if I said tonight, we're going to have a sermon from the pulpit. And it doesn't tell you what we're going to talk about at all. But it went through Matthews 5, 6, and 7, and they had to listen to all that. And I don't know how fast he spoke, but you're standing that whole time. And so Jesus was out sharing these stories, and then he would dismiss them. Well, what are you going to do if you see people being healed and you get meals and you get feeding of thousands? And what are you going to do? You're going to tell your neighbors when you get back home. You're going to tell your brothers and sisters. You're going to get all your relatives and you're going to go out and see Jesus where he is next. And if you find out he's going up north, you're going to go up north with him. But this was all happening in a time of hopelessness. And you say, what do you mean? 
Well, think about it. When Jesus was born, and we have that in Matthew 1 and 2, we don't hear about Jesus again for 28 years. So when the, the, the Magi came into Jerusalem, they says, where is he? He was born king of the Jews. So they're looking for him. They read the stars, the Magi, the same guys that were kind of the people that were there in Daniel's day, these guys that could read the stars, they understood what was going on. And all of Jerusalem was aware of it. They hear about the baby. They hear about the slaughter of the young children. And then nothing for 28 years. The Bible says hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. And so there was that point where they're anxious for what God's going to do, but nothing's happening. And then they start remembering. Gosh, we were enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. Well, then God provided Moses, though. And then we were enslaved by the Assyrians, the northern kingdom, and then the southern kingdom was, we were placed into captivity in 586 until Nehemiah petitions the king. And then we have that period of time between the two testaments where the Seleucids came along and they put us back into captivity until Judas of, of uh, Judas Maccabeus came on and he kind of set us free once again and he's the guy that had the menorah in the temple that didn't run out of oil that we get Hanukkah from. Well, that took place in that time of 400 years. I remember that. And now they're in this time where we're enslaved by Rome. And so now we've got soldiers and now we've got taxes, and we've got Caesars to worry about. And where is that Messiah? And then John the Baptist comes on the scene, and he was promised. Matthew 8, 16 says, Now hope is contagious. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. And so suddenly there's, wait a minute. Doesn't this sounds familiar? Well, John the Baptist, as you know, he was imprisoned because Herodias, the daughter, she talked to her mom, and mom says, ask for his head on the platter. John's in prison, but John wasn't sure if Jesus was the guy. So he sent a messenger to Jesus, and he said, are you the guy? And Jesus sent back a message and said, go tell John these things. This is in Luke 7, 20. These things that you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And John goes, I know where that's from. That's from Isaiah 61. And here's what Isaiah 61 says. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. And he sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to console all those who mourn in Zion. And John is going, this is the guy. And then it hit him for a second because in that verse there in Isaiah 61, it says, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound. John was in prison. When they sent John the message, what did Jesus say? He didn't leave. He didn't put that part of the verse in. He didn't say the same exact quote. He didn't say the, prison, the, the prisoners are going to be unbound. I'm sure John had to think, oh, bummer. I guess I'm not getting out. And sure enough, in within days, John was beheaded. So let's, that's kind of the background here. You have hopelessness of the times. You're waiting 28 more years. You've had all these years of bondages. You finally get out. John the Baptist is here, and he goes, this is the guy. And Jesus tells him, yeah, I'm the guy. And then we have the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, when Jason was talking, he basically said, what keeps us from a deeper relationship with Jesus? And he said, having a bigger vision of who Jesus is. And that question then resounds, who is this guy Jesus then? To have a bigger relationship, I need to rightly know who he is. We talked about understanding his authority. So here's our text in Matthew 8. And let's just go 18 to 22. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. 
Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. So first reading, and if you've never read it before and you just now read it, if you're like most, it sounds like Jesus is really being pretty harsh here. You know, I've had a business, and if you run a business and people come and ask for a job, and if they come in and they say, Mr. Owner, Mr. Boss, I'll go wherever you go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll clean the toilets. I'll brush, the, brush your, car, brush your car out. I'll do whatever you want to do. I'd hire that guy in a minute. That's the kind of loyalty you're looking for. And then if he says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to do everything, but I need to go home. My dad's, I just got to bury my dad, and then I'll see you tomorrow. Kind of thing. Take care of your dad. The car, here's the keys, you know, wash it tomorrow. And I'd be, I'd be pleased as pie to let him go do that. But that's not what Jesus does here. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. So what, was, what are we missing in the story here? Well, one of the things Jesus realized is that, in fact, if, let's hit this another way. Have you ever heard somebody say, can you ever lose your salvation? And there's a debate about that. You know, once saved, always saved. Maybe not. Hebrews 6 says they once tasted it, but now they've left it. And there's a debate in the church sometimes about whether you can lose your salvation. Jesus recognizes that what he was calling you to wasn't something you could flippantly just say, well, I believe that. I'll go do that. I mean, James later on says about believing, he goes, well, the devils believe, but they shudder. So you go to Romans 10 that says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And then if you go right to the next verse, it talks about, excuse me, chapter 12, it talks about giving your body as a living and holy sacrifice. So this idea of confessing and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead and that you would give your body as a living and holy sacrifice, that's your reasonable, acceptable form of service. That's what Jesus is saying when he's calling disciples to follow him. Now it says here that a certain scribe came to him. So the scribe, these were one of those men that rose up during the captivity when the scriptures were kind of scattered and they began making sure that the word of God was cared for. So they had a heart. He was already called a scribe here. The second gentleman's called a disciple. So they were there. But Jesus is saying, salvation is not just believing who I am. It's not just saying you'll follow me. It's an element of the heart that goes way beyond what you see right here. So his first response is, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I don't even have a pillow at night. If you're going to serve and come follow me, you don't have a Motel 6 to go to. You don't have a hot meal every day. You might not get a meal at all. In fact, in Mark 6, Jesus had sent the 12 disciples out, and they came back, and Jesus is going, hey, what happened? Tell me all about it. Hey, come sit over here and tell me. And then in verse 31, it says, he goes, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they didn't even have time to eat. So in the midst of service, as excited they were, they didn't have time to eat. And Jesus knew that. And so when the guy came up and said, hey, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus going, boy, you better count the cost. It may not be what you think it is. He didn't say no, but he said, you've got to consider the cost. That's why today when we talk about, and evangelism is changing all over the world. I remember once, I don't know if it was Billy Graham or Greg Laurie said that they went to their, they looked at their uh, statistics after an event, and he said, only 30% of the people that raise their hand actually stick it out. They go, yeah, I didn't really mean that. Or they'll say, well, yeah, I tried that. How do you try to lay down your life? The life, the life I live, I no longer live in the flesh. So if you've sacrificed your life and you're dead, this life is dead, how do you try that out? How many times do you get to die? 
once. So you don't get to try it out. So Jesus is making that point here. And he says, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples, so he called him his disciple, not one of the apostles, but his disciples, and said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. And that one's a confusing one. Now, we don't know exactly what Jesus meant, but this is Matthew, and he's telling, he's talking to Jewish people with a Jewish tradition. And when someone died in your house, if they were dying today, you buried them within 24 hours. So if you were going somewhere and you traveled to go see Jesus and your dad was on his deathbed, you wouldn't have been there. So you're thinking, hmm, what's he doing here if his dad's gonna die, let me bury him. That means something's not right there. There's also the consideration that in the Jewish mentality that when your dad died right afterwards, that's when you settled the estate. That's when you got your inheritance. So maybe some would say, he was saying, well, Lord, let me go bury my dead, get my money and inheritance so I don't have to live this life of poverty. And then I can serve you a little more in comfort. Either way, Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead, in the way that's written, it says, let those that are spiritually dead bury their own dead. You go, again, that sounds harsh. But again, Jesus is making the point, it costs to serve me. And the highest good you can do when you choose to follow me is to serve me among all things. Like says, he who doesn't hate mother, brother, mother, father, mother, brother, sister for my sake. So compared to the love we have for our family, Jesus says, my love, the love for me is to be greater. So some people then follow Jesus because they were curious. Who is this guy, Jesus? Heals people. Pharisees sometimes wondered too. There were some people that they were seeking immediate things. They were going, I want to get healed. I'll follow him anywhere if I can get my eyesight back, if I can lose 50 pounds, or if I can get my leg back, or I get the leprosy cured, or whatever it happens to be. Or maybe I'll get a free lunch of bread and fish. Then there was the political seekers. In John 6, 15, he says, therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountains by himself alone. There were some people that were thinking that Isaiah verse, baby's born, king, put them together. This is the guy, we wanna make him king now. The sooner we can get rid of Rome, the better. That's where they were coming from. And then there were those that believed in his name when they saw the signs. So they were motivated by the signs. And of course, Jesus would say, well, what happens when there's no signs? Do you believe in me then? In John 2, 23 and 24, he says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men, or he knew what was in the heart of men. I can't commit myself to you because I know what's in there. Just like with Peter, I know you're gonna deny me three times. I know what's in there. So the next part of our scripture now. So now we, we, we're just leaving the point of the cost of service. We're gonna follow Jesus. If we're gonna follow Jesus, we gotta lay down our life. We have to recognize we might not have a place to lay our head. We recognize that compared to our love for Jesus and our willing to serve him, compared to that, our family love is, it doesn't compare. But if we agree to go, and there were 12 that did, now they're in a boat. So look at Matthew 8, 23 to 27. Now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose in the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing. But he said to them, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds in the sea and there was a great calm. So the men marveled saying, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Just like the song we sang. So a couple things in this verse really kind of stand out. And suddenly a great tempest. Now the Greek word for tempest there is seismos. That kind of sounds like seismic. And it's where we get our word today for earthquake. So if you think you're on a sea, and it's kind of moving back and forth like a slow rock, uh-uh. 
this is one of those jolts. This is a, you know, a 9.0 earthquake, and it's jolting your body, and you're feeling it. They called it, a, obviously, a tempest. I remember one time, my wife and I, we went out sailing. We went through the Newport Harbor and out into the, out into the ocean. It was probably a 30-foot sailboat, and we had a main and a jib, and we were just working the jib back and forth and coming about and tacking and all that. And it was, it was a really slow day. It was just kind of little things. And Debbie was going, are we going back yet? This is really, really rough water. <laughs> and that was just the regular, when you go out in the ocean and you see it, if you've been out there at all or on a cruise ship. How many people go on a cruise ship? We were on a ship one time and the guy had a thing on his hand. He had a thing on his neck. He had a thing on the ear. And he, he had four different things going on because he always got seasick just with the little rocket in the roller. This wasn't that. This was a tempest. This was violent. Now, I told you earlier, there's the synoptic optals. Mark and Luke and, John, and uh, Matthew all have different stories. There's a parallel account to this, and it gives us a different take, but a lot more insight. Listen to this now. It's the same story, but listen to the difference in Mark 4, 35 through 41. Well, this is, I, gave that, I gave that to him. It'll show up there. On the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitudes, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he, then he arose, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now we get a much fuller story here in terms of filling in some of the gaps. So listen to what it says then. So let's cross to the other side. So if you picture Galilee, or the Sea of Galilee, and think of it kind of like a light bulb here. So here's this little light bulb. And if you go, the top is north, and the bottom is south. So down here at the bottom, we'll say that's Gaza, down here. And then way up at the top here is Sea of Galilee. And right in the center of it here, it, on each side of the center, on the east side over here, is that gonna be east side? Yeah, on the east side over here for you, um, that's where me Bethesda is. And over on the, this side is where Capernaum is. So Capernaum's over here, and that's kind of the center of Jesus' ministry, Capernaum up here by the Sea of Galilee. If you go down from Capernaum a little, you've got Magdala, and if you were on the trip last year, you went to Magdala, you saw the, the temple that Jesus might have been in if you were in Israel. You went there, right? Some of you are going, yeah, yeah, we went to Magdala. Um, if you go down a little bit further, you'll see where the Jesus boat was, just below Magdala, where the boat they recovered back in 1986, and they uncovered it, and it's a boat about 27 feet and 15 feet, and they raised it up, and they resurrected it, and they go, this is the boat that would have been representative of that time, that first century, when Jesus was actually in boats. So that's there, and so you got... Capernaum over here along the Sea of Galilee, then you got Nazareth down over here, you got Cana just beyond it, and then if you go down back over there, you've got, um, you've got Nazareth here, then you got Jerusalem down there, and you got the Gaza way down there. So that's the Sea of Galilee, and that's what's going on here. So they're up at the Sea of Galilee. So the Sea of Galilee has mountains on the side. It forms into a valley down there. In fact, when we get to Revelation, we'll talk about the Valley of Megiddo. That's, again, here's the thing here. Capernaum's over here. Megiddo Valley's right here, just off the Sea of Galilee. It's off toward the Sea Mediterranean's over there. So there's these mountains on the side. And today, we have Santa Ana winds. And the Santa Ana winds come over the east. They come down the mountains. And when they come down the mountains, they pick up speed. And when you get speed, you get friction, you get heat. And you get that heat settling down here. That's why it was hot during the day. Now the, there's no 
friction coming in, the winds are gone, and it's cold. So we'll drop 30 or 40 degrees once that sun goes down. We don't have that heat. We don't have those thermals created. And it happens. Well, it happens over there in the Sea of Galilee. It is 600 feet below sea level. It is the lowest freshwater body of water in the world. It's 600 feet below. And then it goes down, down into the Jordan River, and then down to the Dead Sea. That's about 1,400 feet below sea level. And that's the deepest saltwater body of water in the world. So we got up here in the Sea of Galilee, the 600 feet below, and it gets warm there during certain months. And you get these thermals created. So it comes down off those mountains, it warms up, and what happens when water get, or air gets warm? It rises. And once it starts rising, then you get off the Mediterranean Sea, you got that cold air coming in, and you get this kind of circular effect. If we turned it on its side, it's kind of like why we get tornadoes in the Midwest. But so we got this circular effect, and you get these winds going, and they can really whip up quickly. In fact, on, that, on the uh, Sea of Galilee, which for you and me, it's probably more like a lake. Think of it as a lake. It's about 13 miles long and about seven miles wide. They can get six to 10 foot waves in there just because of the winds. Now, if the wind's blowing them, that, that means it's not a gradual because of the, the surface of the, uh, the ocean floor where you get a gradual and the waves break at the right place. This is just because the wind is whipping them and it's gusty winds. So that maybe a 10 footer, every five seconds, then one at three, then one at one, then maybe you wait 30, you don't know, it's inconsistent. Well, Jesus was with accomplished fishermen. They understood these things. They were out at nighttime. So unless it was a starry full moon night, you couldn't see anything. And then you're out there with these gusty winds and six to 10 foot waves. And now when you read it and it says, and a great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. And the Greek tense for that is the idea that it was filling and it was continually filling. It was kept on filling up. But he was in the stern asleep. And the idea was he was asleep and he was still sleeping. He kept sleeping. So it's filling and filling and filling and he's sleeping and sleeping and sleeping. And they awoke and said to him, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? So he rose and rebuked. When he rebuked it, it says, the idea is that just suddenly the wind stopped and the sea was calm. And you say, in fact, it says there was a great calm. When I was a kid, we had a pool. It was 15 by 30, just over here in La Havre, up on Brass Lantern. And we'd go around the pool, my brothers, there were six of us, and we'd go around the pool and we'd pull as fast as we could to get kind of a circular motion. And the water then would come up over the side and we'd keep going around and we'd go around. And then we'd stop. The water didn't stop. It kept going around, but it slowly, slowly it got lower and lower. And then we'd do it again. <laughs> and we just, I don't know why it was fun, but that's what we did. But that's not what happened here. When Jesus came on and said, be still, he said there was a great calm. It went from 10 foot waves to glass. If you were a water skier, you were in heaven. It was glass. And the wind was stopped. So in essence, the miracle here was twofold. It wasn't just that the wind and the sea stopped, but the wind stopped first, and then the sea was calm. He accomplished both. So how is it that you have no faith, he says? And then it begs the question, We'll get to answer all these things as we tie all this together. Why the storm in the first place? I mean, Jesus said, let's get together and go to the other side. Let's cross over. Why the storm? I mean, Jesus could have, he didn't have to take him through the storm. He could have just gone right over. Could have stopped the storm before they started. A number of things that Jesus could have done. So why the storm? And then they said, don't you care? Now it's one thing to say, Jesus, save me. It's another thing to say, Jesus, don't you care? When he said, Jesus, don't you care, now you're questioning his character, his compassion, his heart. All that he was, 
they said, don't you even care about us? And he's probably thinking, if I'd been with you so long that you still don't understand. Later on in the scriptures here, it says, after the feeding of the 5,000, it says, they didn't get it. Their hearts were hardened. They just didn't get it. So they're challenging now the very character of God. And then they said, who can this be? They said it in awe and in fear. And if you look at those words, those words there, it says, why are you so fearful? fearful? That word there is cowardly. Why are you so cowardly? Why don't you stand up, take it like a man? Lacking in courage. But the second word, and they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be? That's a word that means intimidation, almost a reverential fear and oh, mind-boggling. When I was in college, I, my roommate was Jerry Root, and he was, he's a world-famous C.S. Lewis scholar today. And he was talking with a friend, and they were wondering what heaven was going to be like. And his friend said, I think we're going to get into heaven, and we're going to stand around one day, and we're going to walk in, and we're going to look around and go, wow. He goes, so that's what you meant when you did that. And Jerry said, he goes, I looked at him, he says, no, I don't think it's going to be that way. Because I think we're going to walk in there and go, whoa! <laughs> we're just going to get blown away. It's just going to be absolutely mind-boggling, encompassing all of us. When these guys said, and they were fear exceedingly, it was, whoa, who is this guy? I, they couldn't comprehend. Here's the guy. Even the wind and the sea obey him. Now, why would that cause such fear? We're going to come back. We'll get to that. I've got to show you the next part of this now. In Matthew 14, we have another version. This is another storm. And this is the one where he calls Peter to walk on the water. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea. Ah, familiar place, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. So we have a contrary wind now. It's not a great storm, a contrary wind. Now in the fourth watch of the night, 3 to, three to 6 a.m. in the morning, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled. Notice it doesn't say there was great fear. It says he was troubled. It's a ghost. So it's pitch black. The sea was, um, they were concerned about it. It was tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And so maybe there was some moon and the lights, and they're going up and down, and they're seeing something there. And so they were troubled, and they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. Because now they're seeing something, and it's dark, and they don't know what it is. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, be of good cheer. It's I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked in the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got back into the boat, the wind ceased. Now, this time, Jesus didn't say, be still. He got in the boat, and it just ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, you truly are the Son of God. What happened here? So they see Jesus. They think it's a ghost. Then Jesus shows himself in all of his, I don't want to say his glory yet, but they saw that it was Jesus. Peter then goes, Jesus is here. It's kind of like last, last Wednesday when the centurion said, or the guy with his lepers, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He already believed that Jesus could heal him, but he said, if you're willing. And then Jesus said, I'm willing. Peter stands up and says, Lord, this is Randy's paraphrase, if you're willing, tell me to come out and walk on the water. The guy, the leper, he believed Jesus could heal him, and so Jesus did. Peter said, Lord, if you're willing, call me out in the water. 
So Jesus said, come, Peter, come. And so Peter starts walking along. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, and I'm thinking to myself, well, wait a minute. They all saw that ahead of time. They said it was tossed by the waves and the wind was contrary. They already knew that it was contrary. And now it says, but when he saw that the wind was boisterous. So this conditions didn't change. So what happened here? And immediately Jesus stretched out his hands and caught him when he said, Lord, save me. So it wasn't the wind, it wasn't the circumstance that changed. So he wasn't fearful now because of the circumstance. It didn't change. It was the exact same one he started with. So what changed? When the leper asked his hand to be healed, it was healed. It never went back. Jesus said, be it done according to your faith. If he said to Peter here, now be it done according to your faith, what would have happened? He started to sink. That's why Jesus said to him, oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? What did he doubt? It wasn't that he doubted he could walk on the water, because he did that. What he doubted is whether Jesus could keep him, whether the Jesus that he saw there was able to do what Peter thought he could do. And he began to doubt that Jesus could. Not the circumstance, it was Jesus. And I'm going, whoa, that's kind of heavy. When I look at life's circumstances, am I afraid of the circumstances or is it more reflection of, as Jason said last week, I don't have the relationship yet. And I can't trust if I don't have the relationship yet. Another version of this story, Mark 6. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone in the land and he saw them straining at rowing for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking in the sea and would have passed by them. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, be of good cheer as I don't be afraid. Then he went up to the boat to them and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond the measure and marveled. For they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. This story doesn't have Peter in it. So the question is, why isn't Peter? It seems like a big deal. This is Mark's version. He's talking to the Romans. He's not talking to the people that understand about the disciples and all that and the history of the Romans and the part that I'm going to get to in a second. So Peter wasn't talked about. But perhaps for another reason, if I asked you right now, I said, I want you, Debbie, my wife, I want you to tell me how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And she would give me an instruction. And then I could say, Nick, I want you to tell me how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And I said, Lori, I want you to tell me how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Now, Debbie's going to say, I want you to go in and I want you to get one of those natural organic pieces of things of peanut butter. And I want to go get you some good, healthy bread. And I want you to get a knife. And then I want you to stir it up so the oil's mixed in there now. And then I want you to spread it on the thing evenly, but be generous with that. Nick might say, grab some peanut butter, grab the, I don't know if you eat white bread or not, take whatever's in the cupboard there, put the thing on and go. And Lori might say, well, you put the peanut butter on and since she's got the grandkids and then you go cut the crusts off and, <laughs> and she could have a whole different story. Everybody is telling the story. Only Debbie said about organic bread. Only Nick talked about white bread and Lori talked about the crust. So sometimes in the scriptures, we hear these different pictures of the same story, and we wonder, and people will say, see, the Bible is not consistent. It, 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 it contradicts itself. No, it doesn't contradict itself. We've got three men telling the story from their perspective. And other times in the scripture says, if we wrote down everything that Jesus said, it would be volumes and books too big to write. So they didn't write everything. Holy Spirit didn't give us too much to handle here. He gave us what we needed. The other thing about this miracle and these miracles here, they happen in the normal things in life. Now this is, this is big for us, because if miracles happened all the time, then it'd be very difficult to really give God praise for something if you didn't know it was just a normal thing in life, or something big really happened. Two weeks ago when Matt Mayer was here, um, there's a guy here, what's Art's last name? What's that? Yeah, the driver. 
can't hear you. <laughs> Art. So he's, he's here, and he's here with his nephew. His name is Ernie. I met Ernie at a BNI business meeting in Brea. And he came up here, and I said, Ernie, good to see you. He was at the, right at the dinner. I said, how you been? And he goes, after a few minutes, he goes, yeah, I, I just got, I had to deal with stage four cancer in my eye. I was going, whoa. So I, afterwards, I'm sitting down here with him. I go, tell me about that. And he told me about it. It's a fabulous story, and I don't have it. I'd love to tell it to you, but it's, it's a fabulous story. He went to a meeting with, at uh, Calvary Anaheim. There was 20 men there, and they prayed. And he went to the doctor the next day, and they had, they do, had to do a pediogram, what do you call it? It's where they inject you with nuclear stuff, and uh, they take the, like an MRI, but all the, if you have cancer, it all floods to the glucose, and it takes that picture, and you can see that. And he did that, and his body was just, basically one blob of white. He was just cancer-ridden. And the next day, he had to go in for a bone marrow trans, or bone marrow test, so they did the test of the bone marrow, and the doctor called him in. They had both there. They had the x-ray, and they're looking at this, and they're looking at the uh, bone marrow thing, and they're, they're opposite. This one says you got it through and through, and this one says you don't have anything. And he told the doctor, he goes, I'll do whatever you say. He goes, but I think God healed me. And so they did the first thing at chemo, and they came back, and they said, you're done. You have nothing. And he's sitting here talking this story. This is, we're talking years ago now. This thing is done. And I listen to that, and you go, what's amazing? That's not an everyday thing. Having cancer can be common in the world, but being healed is not an everyday thing. And the fact that he was, we can't do anything but honor God with that, because there's no other way it could have happened except for that. The disciples, the miracle that took place, took place in something they do all the time. They're out on the ship. And yet, the wind and the sea were stopped. I'm looking up at my clock, and I'm going to have to move along here. There is a series of scriptures in Psalms 89, 8 and 9, um, 104, 106, and 107, and each one of them goes through, and it explains how God in the Old Testament, is the one who commands the seas and the waters. And if it's very, very explicit, in fact, I'll just give you one of them here. It's Psalm 107. I didn't write, I didn't write those out. 29, I think it is, yeah. He says, then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. Remember, Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. The Jewish audience is going to have read the Old Testament scriptures. A Jewish audience is going to know that God has given command of the seas. They're going to remember the parting of the Red Sea, that God had the water moved to the side and they walked across on dry land. They'll remember Jericho and Joshua. All those things where it's God that controls. Moses lifting up his hands and God performs a miracle. They're out on the boat. That's why they were so afraid because somewhere it registered. Wait a minute. Only God can do those things. And they saw Jesus do it. And that's why they said, what manner of man is this? He does the things that only God can do. What was the point of Matthew? The point of Matthew is to say Jesus is the Messiah and he is the promised one. He is the one that's going to reign forever and ever. He is the king, the Lord of lords. That who, that's who Jesus is. And when they, in that brief moment, they had a glimpse. That's who Jesus is for a second. And suddenly when you look at this chapter 8 here and you start seeing, if you begin to understand who Jesus is and that you understand the only thing keeping you, like Peter, from experiencing all that Jesus would bring is that if you don't know who he is, you can't. But if you do, and you do have that relationship with him, then all that he promises can be yours. If you're not one of the disciples who's kind of just following along the game because it's cool, it's kind of good to get these little benefits on the side, 
but you're actually committed, you've died to self, you've died, you sacrificed a living sacrifice, then all those things are very available for you. They saw miracles before. It wasn't the first time they saw a miracle. They came back and said, Lord, all these things are happening. And, and Jesus said, yeah, you're going to have power to cast out demons and all these things. They were thrilled all these things. But that changed now because now they realize who it is that calms the storms and controls the weather. And that's only God. Even Elijah in his day when he talked about the rain, he went out and prayed and prayed and prayed and he sent the servant out seven times to look to see if the clouds were coming. But he didn't make it rain. He just saw the signs and declared it, proclaimed it. God changed the weather. It's funny, when you look at the pilgrims and we're talking about Thanksgiving and they left and they came over on that 66-day voyage, half of them died in the first month or so. And you think, what were they thinking when they got in that boat and they were coming across the sea? They had to take their sails down because it was a tempest rolling water. And these were guys and men, men and women and families that knew the scriptures and they knew that God controlled the seas. They relied upon those scriptures to get them across. There was no other way they could do it. And then when they got there, even though half had died, they had no food, they were thankful because they were like the disciples that said, what manner of man is this? Who is Jesus that controls these things? We survived this. How do we honor a God who does that for us? That was the pilgrims. So trials can be overwhelming. These guys were overwhelmed. They said, Lord, we're perishing. Don't you care? They were at wit's end. They felt it. They could feel it in their being. I remember once I was on a plane. I was flying from here to Arizona with my daughter in the seat. And we hit one of those places where the thunderclouds were going up. And the captain got on the thing and he says, you know, we're flying in this, this thundercloud. It's 60,000 feet high, so we can't go over it. Felt like that song, can't go over it, can't go around it, got to go through it. <laughs> so that's what we did. We went through it, and it was shaking. It was rough. It was going up and down. And, and I was just telling Nick and Amber, you can't help feeling what you feel. If you're nervous, then you're nervous. If you're scared, you're scared, right? You can't just say, I'm not going to be scared. I'm not going to be scared. You're going to be scared if you're scared. I admit it. I was scared. I was thinking, this is, you know, you're thinking a wing's just going to snap off when it bounces again. And there was a girl in the back, a little girl. And she was back there, and she was... Every time the plane went up and down, she was going, whee! <laughs> and it got to the point that we were happy when it went up and down because we knew there was going to be a whee at the end of it, you know. And she got us through. She took the edge off that stuff. In James, he says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. He doesn't say, he says, consider it all joy. He doesn't say it, you're going to be joyful in it. Just consider it all joy. When Jesus showed up, he said, be of good cheer. Consider it joy, guys. I'm here. He said, don't be afraid. This wasn't about information. This was about knowledge, personal knowledge of who Jesus was. Don't be afraid. I'm here, he says. In Hebrews 13, 5, it says, be content with such things as you have. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Jesus that says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, I will never leave you. And believe that God has raised me to that, I will never leave you. I will never leave you. Jesus is the same yesterday, day, and tomorrow. I won't leave you. That is a promise. If we know him, not like Peter that said, I think he can, and then when I'm here, I'm not so sure, he sank. The leper, he can heal me if he wants to, and he did. The correct view about Jesus changes everything and how we see everything. We're not just a little different. We have a whole new world view. I just ran out, but I need to say one thing, because it's not in my chapter. I think Lance is going to be doing this, so I'm just stealing some of his verses. But in, in chapter 9, in verse 2, 
He says, then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying in a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And then in 9.22, he says, but Jesus turned around and when he saw her, he said, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Contrast two things here. In 9 verse 2, this is after everything in chapter 8. Path of miracles. He's going to do some more here in chapter 9. They lay the paralytic come down. And he said, again, your sins are forgiven you. Behold, they brought him a paralytic lying in a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, the paralytic didn't have the faith. It was their faith that saved him. The woman later on had the faith, and Jesus said, according to your faith, be healed. So why is that such a big deal? Just last week, we had a men's thing, and we had the committed men and having a chance to sign up. We do this often here at the church. We invite you to come down. Sometimes people say you can have pray and they have oil here and you can do those things. But sometimes you don't feel it. And the reason we need to be here together, the reason we need to commit to one another is sometimes some of you, some of us, have great faith that day. We're really feeling it. We're motivated. The worship was, and we're there. And others are sitting here and they're not feeling great faithful, so they sit in their seats. But if you're not fellowshipping and hanging out, you don't know that. And so that's the time when you need to grab someone. In fact, Lance does this often. If you see him in the foyer there, sometimes he'll take somebody and he'll say, Randy, Nick, Chris, come over here. And he'll come over there. He's praying for someone. He's bringing you over because of your faith. He's thinking like this paralytic. Because of their faith, they were healed. That person might not even be saved and have no faith whatsoever. But because of your faith, Jesus heals. Do you know how great that is? I remember once praying for our daughter, granddaughter once, and she had, we thought she had rheumatoid arthritis. It was childhood, so it disappeared. But when I, I was thinking, how do I pray for this? I, don't, I felt like, Peter, I just don't know if God can do this. Because we pray and pray and pray, and nothing seemed to change. I didn't have the faith. And as I'm reading it this week, I realized, what if I would have brought her down and said, Lance, who are the, who's got great faith right now? I need them around me because I don't. And have them pray. I'll join them, but their faith, praying the prayer of faith. We need one another. The whole push right now is we want to be committed. You, you can tell there's a, a move afoot to connect. We want to connect, not just because it's fun to hang out, but because in connecting the spiritual things that we need, some of us, it's like the body all fitting together. Some of us are real, some of you are real strong. And some of us, when we're weak, we need to join up with you. We want to be a part with you. We need you to pray with us and for us on behalf of us. So in closing, again, <laughs> Jesus was God, and the disciples had a firsthand experience, and when they recognized it, it shocked their world. It shocked them when they realized Jesus was God. And as we look at this 2,000 years later, our prayer is that we would recognize that Jesus is not just our savior, he's not just our companion, an ever-present help in time of need, but Jesus is God. And all that he does in the Old Testament, the miracles and care in the magnificent of creation, all that he brings to bear on life and humanity, past, present, future, he is our God. And that we might say, who is this man that even the wind and sea obey him? And then it says, when he got in the boat, the others, they fell down and worshiped him. They were no longer afraid. They saw him for what it was, and they worshiped him. Father, as we consider this scripture and these, these passages of men in a boat and water and, and how rich they are in terms of discovering who you are and what you are and that you are our God and that as God that you saved us. You provided the way of escape for our sin. 
And so, Lord, as we, as we leave today, I pray that we wouldn't leave here without thanking you, acknowledging you, and, Lord, like those men, that our time would be to worship you in our thoughts and in our heart the remainder of this week that, and for the rest of our lives. And as we shared last week, Lord, that, it's, that we would understand how to develop that deep relationship with you that it would become a bigger and better and stronger and powerful part of our lives. So we thank you, Father. We thank you, Jesus, for being our God. And we bless you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Me and I are doing sign language here. <laughs> um, I went over, so I guess.